Romans 13, 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please join me as we pray? Father, we're in great need. We live, uh, as you know, at a time when this subject uh, causes great division, fear, rancor. And uh, many times this is seen in the church. And we ask that you, Jesus, King of the church, would renew our minds. And I pray that the words of my mouth would uh, be pleasing to you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we're cruising along here in our Theology and Life series. We'll have one more week, um, and we'll wrap it up after that. And this week, the topic that uh, falls before us is politics. Politics and the kingdom of God. Now, I'll say um, right from the beginning, I think uh, pastors can make uh, a number of mistakes, But two are definitely, one is to ignore any vocation, including politics. The other would be to pretend like they're an expert. Uh, I'm not up here as a politician, if you haven't gathered that, uh, or a governing official. Uh, What I'm here to talk about is what does the Scripture say about those of us that engage in the political sphere? And I want to put three thoughts before you to consider. Politics is necessary. Politics as broken, politics as redeemable. Um, There has never been a time, after sin entered the world, there has never been a time when those three three things are not true. And whether you personally look back to a golden age of politics or hope for a future golden age, or whether uh, the next election it's the candidate of your dreams or the candidate of your nightmare, those three things are still true. Politics as necessity, politics as broken, and politics as redeemable. So that's what I want to look at together using Romans 13 and some other texts. Now, uh, politics is necessary. By that, I don't mean as a necessary evil, but a necessary good. We've often uh, said that the Christian faith teaches that God instituted three things. The church, the family, and the state. And here we're told in this passage that the state represents God's sovereign authority on earth. 
This is what Paul said. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So he said pretty clearly. This is the reason there is honor given. Now, uh, that presents us with a foundational and very challenging thing, challenging call, and it's this. Christians owe politicians unqualified respect. Okay? Um, Now, I know that sounds heretical in this day. I know it it sounds uh, preposterous. But I hope to justify it, especially in I, you know, all the questions that you would have. Well, what about evil politicians? What about corrupt politicians? What about those that are dictators? On and on. All those questions, legitimate questions. But keep in mind, I think one of the most provocative things about what we heard read and what you're going to hear me quote in the next couple minutes is the historical context it was written in. So, for instance, Daniel. If you know the story of Daniel, you know that Daniel was part of the conquered people, conquered by Babylon, carted off against his will, and spends time under the maniac Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, if you want to talk about a narcissistic dictator, Nebuchadnezzar. And yet he writes this, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He removes kings and sets up kings. That God is in ultimate control. And then you go to the book of Jeremiah and you heard said about this very man. God refers to him as my servant. Refers to this dictator, this immoral man, as my servant. Well, he does the same thing in verse 6, doesn't he? When Paul says that authorities are ministers of God, servants of God. If you know anything about the background of the book of Romans, it was written, we believe, about A.D. 57. That was when Nero was in power in Rome. And Nero's own contemporary historians characterized him as someone that was tyrannical, someone that was compulsive, and someone that was corrupt. Not to mention he later persecuted Christians. And on top of that, Paul was one of the persecuted Christians. What I'm telling you is the writer of this passage was persecuted by the government. He was treated unjustly by the government. That's what makes it so challenging to me personally. And we should understand that Paul isn't coming up with his own. He's echoing Jesus Christ, who in turn was persecuted and executed by the government, and yet said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God. How are we to think about this? Well, we begin by realizing that our trust is in the sovereign power of God. Our trust is in the sovereign power of God, which is greater than the trust of our elected leaders. Where is the location of your trust when you think about government? Where is the location of your hope? And there's a tension here, right? I mean, as you read this, some of you were probably thinking, you know, maybe some of you thought, amen, yeah. Others of you thought, you know, I've seen so much injustice in the hands of those in authority, I can't even stomach what I just heard read. And yet one of the things, the only thing, to be honest with you, that will keep you in a place where you can see it has value is understanding that God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. 
That God is the one that rules over who gets in power and who is not in power. And we're told two things about the state here explicitly. One is, it's there for our security. He mentions the sword. The sword represents the authority to administer penalties up to and including death. That was its normal meaning in the scriptures. Whether you're someone that believes the death penalty is legit or not, I'm just telling you that's the meaning intended in the scripture there. And uh, it is meant to restrain evil, wage just war when necessarily, and keep peace. So um, a couple months ago, I was having a conversation. I got a call from uh, a Christian who is in law enforcement and had to discharge his weapon, which resulted in fatality. And so he wanted to meet, and we sat down and talked. And he said, I'm really wrestling with this idea of thou shalt not kill. Now, his particular shooting was judged to be a just shooting, a necessary shooting. And so I said, you know, if your shooting would have been judged not to be, yeah, you should wrestle with thou shalt not kill. But everything I understand, you actually should locate your thought in Romans 13. Because you are an agent of the state, given with the power of the sword to restrain evil. This is one thing that uh, Paul tells us that we're given by God, and that God has instituted this. Another thing he gives us is prosperity, and you'd have to read that into taxes. Now, how in the world could taxes ever be a good thing? And I'm sure we have folks in this room that say, I pay way too many taxes. Some of you that say, I pay way too little, that's a lie. All right? Uh, you think you pay way too many taxes. There's those of you that think we shouldn't have taxes at all. But basically, you find this affirmation that, no, there's a place for public money for the infrastructure so that we can do life and live life and have roads and so on and so on. So Paul has instituted, rather, God has instituted the state for that purpose as well. Now, after having said that, let me drive it to application. What application do we draw from this idea that God has instituted the state for good? And it's really found in the last words of the passage, honor. Honor. We live at a time where folks believe, if I disagree with you, I have the right to disrespect you. That basically goes hand in hand. If I disagree with you, I think you're wrong. You're not entitled to my respect. You especially give it, get it online. And I want to remind those of you that are professing Christians, uh, we are a covenant people. And I think covenant means relationship. And it ought to mean that we ought to be very slow to air our opinions on mediums that are not relational. Right? Sometimes we would say things publicly online or through a tweet or a text that we would never say to someone if we sat down with them and really heard and talked to them. We are covenantal, relational people. And God will hold all of us accountable for every tweet, every blog, every word that we said. So we're called to honor those in power. But what about in particularly bad times? Well, let me say this. Having the advantage, the benefit of living a half century or a little bit more, I've seen a lot of administrations, Democrat and Republican. And I promise you, I have heard over and over, and I won't say that I didn't participate at different times, every administration was the worst thing that ever happened. You know, know, the sky was falling. Whether I was up at Harvard and it was George Bush was the cause of it, whether I was in the South and it was Bill Clinton was the cause of it, it just goes on and on. 
as God people, what we're being commanded here isn't unusual or unreasonable. If Joseph could give respect to Pharaoh, if Esther could give respect to a womanizing king and a harem she was forced into, if Daniel could give respect to a dictator, you and I owe unqualified respect to those that serve and govern. And so while the church, parts of the church, or the culture may resort to tribalism, may resort to oversimplifying the other side, may resort to uh, deriding people, disrespecting, we're called to something greater. Uh, Alan Jacobs, who's a professor at Baylor, said this, and I thought it was worth repeating. In American politics, nobody is just wrong. They're labeled evil, malicious, and part of a conspiracy. This simplicity makes nuance very difficult. But then he says this, I want to be generous, and I want to be civil, and I want to be kind. I want to listen to people who are very different from me. I want to keep doing that even if it doesn't make things better. I think that's really a wonderful expression of the call of a Christian. You know, we're not called to have character toward an end result, right? We trust God for the end result. We instead are called to act in faith and to walk in faith, which includes respect. Uh, It must have been, I think it was a couple years into our meeting at Calvary Baptist Church, uh, maybe earlier, where a friend of mine, someone I knew from a past life, uh, was in D.C., and I invited them to church. And they came to church for a couple of weeks, and then they sent me an email and said, I can't come to the church anymore. And I said, why? And they said, well, because I was sitting in the balcony, and I looked across, and I saw someone there that works for a, a think tank that I just can't stand. And so I'm not going to come anymore. And, uh, you know, that's really the tenor, right, in the tone. And one of the things I praise God for that somehow we've been able to maintain relationships and covenant with people coming from many different places and labor to have respect. And I've seen that well over the years, and I think it might be one of the greatest testimonies to the Christian faith in Washington, D.C. that you can have, period. A group of people that can be loving, civil, listen. But we've got to move to this next point, which is politics as broken, because it is corrupted by sin. Political leaders abuse authority, they steal money, they give favors to their friends and people in power. Instead of servants, they act like dictators, they act as if they're above the law, right? It's always been that case. Not all political leaders, but political leaders do that, which is why it's so important that Christians that work in government and politics or near it guard their faith. I want to tell you, if you work on the Hill or industries related to that, vocations related to it, I walk past the Hill every day to work. And my prayer is always for you first. It's for professing Christians that they might be able to maintain their character and do good in a very difficult circumstance. And I don't think I'm the only one praying. Stephen Carter, a professor at Yale, said, Uh, When the church forgets its identity, when you have institution blurring, where the church begins to start to move toward the government, it loses its prophetic power to speak into the state. God meant, you see this all through the Old Testament, the church to have a prophetic power to speak to the state, 
not to disrespect it, to speak to it. And when the church forgets to do that, it is reduced to what we would call civil religion. It's reduced to civil religion. Here's a, here's a description of that by Russell Moore. Christian values were always more popular in American culture than the Christian gospel. That's why one could speak of God and country with great reception in almost any era of the nation's history, but would create cultural distance as soon as one mentioned Christ and him crucified. God was always welcome in American culture. He was, after all, the deity whose job it was to bless America. The God who must be approached through the mediation of the blood of Christ, however, was much more difficult to set to patriotic music or to amen in a prayer at the Rotary Club. I think that's a wonderful distinction between civil religion and gospel religion. Here he's referring to mostly that expression on the right, but I've seen it on the left. Uh, As I worked for six years as a chaplain at Harvard, I would often see the Protestant churches busy themselves, not with the gospel, but basically petitions and protests. And in a moment, I'll get to the importance of activism. But that's all there was. So either, either side can be reduced to civil religion. Civic religion. So, um, G.K. Chesterton made this insight, and I think it's worth repeating. Uh, Coziness between the church and the state is always good for the state, but bad for the church. That's the way it always works out. And you see this tension with Jesus and his disciples. Jesus taught that the disciples would say, when are you going to restore the kingdom of God? He's thinking about... The kingdom of God, they're thinking about the kingdom of Israel. They lived in that culture, lived in that space. And what happens, it's not just corporate with the church. It it, it happens personally. And that is this. Not only does the church get reduced to civil religion, Christians get reduced to mere citizens instead of followers of Christ. And they're more prone to idolatry. If you read the scripture, there's no way that you can believe that any one party has faithfully and fully represented the totality of God's kingdom. I could take you places in scripture where uh, what are considered traditional conservative values, whether it be about sexuality, whether it be about the family are upheld, or the passage we just had read is the Old Testament. It talks only about justice of the poor and the alien and the immigrant, Right? So part of what it means to be a follower in Christ, and it's, I think it's very hard. It's, I, I, I tell you, as I say this every time I preach on politics, the longer I've been here, the more compassionate I am for those of you that labor in that sphere. Because I think it's very difficult. And, you know, it's very easy for the world just to become cynical and write people off. But that doesn't honor the first point we made. And so it's very difficult to be in that situation where uh, you're laboring for uh, a particular party but not equating it with the kingdom of God. It takes labor to, when you hear an issue about marriage to not think politically before you think biblically. Or to, to hear about an issue of immigration and not think politically first and not biblically first. It, it takes a lot of work. It's called renewing our minds, but we have to do it. We have to labor to do that or we get cloudy. So how are we called, application-wise, to live with the reality of the brokenness of politics? Let me mention three things. One is simply humility, that you would be self-critical first, right? 
most critical about your own political beliefs. Uh, That just goes without saying. That's humility. The second thing is activity, activism. Because the call to respect the government doesn't mean there's a call not to do anything. Where biblical issues rise and speak to the culture, the church must rise and speak. Whether it's the sanctity of life, whether it's the abuse of women, whether it's the oppression of the poor, the church must speak and act. And historically, we get some good examples of that. There's bad examples, but some good examples. In the first century, the church rose up and took care of orphans. In the 15th century, the church rose up and began to start hospitals because there was a great need for that. In the 18th century, the church rose up and helped abolish slavery in England. In the 20th century, the church rose up and helped begin the work of civil rights. In the end of prejudice, the church was the leading role there. Now, in the American church, the African-American church has been much more active that way. And sometimes white evangelicals critique that, all the while forgetting that they live in a nation where the system works for them. There hasn't been really a need for political advocacy, so it's easy for a white evangelical to go, people shouldn't be so political. Well, the system works pretty well for you. But for those that were African American in the church, what do you find? I mean, just, you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago, shut out of the conversation completely. And so the church became this one place, this power hub, this place that could act in society. But either way, the church must act and is called to act, which gets to the the question that I know was in your mind as I talked about unqualified uh, respect is what about civil disobedience? And that's absolutely a biblical value. You can think about the Hebrew midwives. When Pharaoh said, every Jewish male that's born, I want you to kill him. They didn't do that. Civil disobedience. Or the classic example in the New Testament, Acts chapter 5, when uh, the apostles are before the, the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling body in Israel, and they said, we must obey God before we obey men. So yes, there is ground for civil disobedience and action. But lastly, I want to say on this point of brokenness, is perseverance. I think... Um, It's very easy, right? What happens with us is we get tired, we get deflated, and then we resort to returning evil for evil. I mean, it just happens in our personal lives, right? Let alone communal and political life. And so you look to examples of people. Wilberforce, how many times did he lose? I mean, year after year he was defeated. The African-American church, as it persevered, and the political advocates there, I mean, hundreds of years, decades of working. And so the church, we have help. We have God. God who will be our power. God who will be our strength. God that will help us not faint. Which leads me to the last point. Politics as redeemable. Politics are not more lost than any other vocation. And they're no less redeemable. In fact, God says that he extends his justice and mercy through the state. That means he extends redemption through the state. It's implied in Paul's words when he talks about what the state does. But in Psalm 72, we get a beautiful example of this. This was a song that was sung on Inauguration Day. And it was sung to remind kings what they were supposed to do. And in it we find the king is to deliver the needy when he calls. 
the poor and him who has no helper. He is to save the lives of the needy from oppression and violence, and precious is their blood in his sight. So those that govern an authority should have a special eye, a special empathy, a special advocacy for the poor and oppressed. That's part of their call. We're not talking about favoritism, but we're talking about having a heart for those. And also, for those in government, should experience blessing. And this is another way I think the church could really do something different. And that is for our brothers and sisters laboring in that sphere, for public officials, that we could seek to actually bless them for the good works that they do. Where do we get that? This comes from Samuel. He who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God, is as the light of the morning when the sun rises. Someone to be celebrated. Because when they do that, they're actually mirroring the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is really where we have to end our story and where we have to hope. Because the only way that we can move along And I know you, like me, have days where you just think, the world is just so broken and unjust. How will it endure? My heart is so heavy, I can't can't read another story. And it's at that point the people of God have to remember that we do not labor against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers of heaven. This government is just an earthly expression of spiritual government and of the kingdom of Christ that will come and be established. His kingdom will come. It has already come. It is coming. It will come. And one day, we'll actually get to walk in a society where there is only justice and only blessing. And as hard as it is to imagine that, by the imagination of faith, we must. Or we will just quit. We will stop. Even just living here is a challenge, right? I tell people, you know, uh, for us, the local news is more politics, right? It's just, that's what it is here. And so I I want to uh, bless, urge, challenge, encourage us as a community. Can we strive to be this and so be a witness of God in this city, which he loves? In Christ's name, let's pray. Lord, in your name, we do pray. It's in your name that we have any hope. It's in your name that we move forward. We pray, God, that uh, what is true and right would lay in our hearts. And we pray especially for those that labor in the sphere of politics or related vocations. I pray that they would uh, feel your smile that they would feel your energy. I pray that you would deliver them from cynicism and deflatedness, and I pray that you would give them success. In Christ's name, amen.